Now we welcome to our pulpit again, Reverend Charles Williams. Thank you, brother. Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 3. Will you please stand as we give attention to the reading and the hearing of God's Word? 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, Although I am but a little child, do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, and have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. He came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark, the covenant of the Lord. And he offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I gave birth to a child while she was in the house, and on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. 
Only we two were in the house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on top of him. And he arose at midnight and took my son. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. The other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. The king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. The king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive said to the king, Because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman. By no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. They stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Please be seated. How many of you have ever been in a situation where the complexities of life and the circumstances were such that you were unable to figure a way out? Could be a particular trouble, a particular situation or circumstance that had arisen and you don't know what to do. And so after days, perhaps weeks of contemplating this particular situation, you bring your troubles to some of your closest friends, hoping that they, in their wisdom, uh, would be able to help guide you out of the darkness. Bring your problems to your friends, laying out what you believe to be a complex situation, something that requires, in your estimation, much listening on their part. And yet only a few sentences in, your friend begins to blurt out some type of fortune cookie cutter type uh, 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 saying uh, that they think you should do that just really leaves you rattled and upset. All you can really think is, you know, at least Job's friends sat there in silence for seven days. Maybe you could give me seven minutes and hear out my problems. We've all been in situations like that where we need wisdom. Where is wisdom to be found? It's the very question that Job himself asked in the midst of his troubles. It's the very question that we have before us in our passage this evening here. Uh, The scriptures direct our hearts to the source of wisdom, where true wisdom is to be found, and secondly, how that wisdom is to be acquired. It comes not primarily through speaking, but through hearing, particularly wisdom as it relates to life and the kingdom of Christ. There are two parts to this particular story, neatly divided, I think. First, we see the matter of wisdom requested. We see that here in the first 15 verses as Solomon appears before the Lord at Gibeon. And then the second half of the chapter, verses 16 to 28, we see the matter of wisdom bestowed. 
as the wisdom that Solomon has given is now put to the test in a very difficult situation. So wisdom requested and wisdom bestowed. Chapter 3 really begins with a bang. Uh, our, uh, all the red lights, all the red flags should be waved at the very beginning as we are told that Solomon, now newly minted as the king of Israel, enters into a marriage alliance with the daughter of Pharaoh. We want to say, Solomon, really? Are you kidding me? The daughter of the great enemy of the people of God? After all that Yahweh had done for his people, 400 years of slavery, as the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, redemption by blood, deliverance through the Red Sea, judgment that befalls Pharaoh and his army, and a lifetime of training a people in the wilderness what it looks like no longer to be slaves of an enemy king and tyrant, but to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. And now, just like that, at the drop of a hat, all of these things are undone, and we find that the nation of Israel is in cahoots once again with her once captive overlord. A political alliance has been formed. Solomon, of his own volition, has quite literally crawled into the bed of the enemy of the people of God. When you read the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord lays out through the law of Moses what was to be required of the king of Israel once the king and the monarchy was established for the people of God. Among those things is this reiterated warning, do not go back to Egypt. Whatever you do, do not go back. Other things are included. You're not to take many wives to yourself. We will see that as a problem that Solomon transgresses as well. But you're also not to go back to Egypt to build up your own military supply. You're not to acquire much horses or much gold for yourself. And you're not to go back to Egypt to acquire those horses. And yet we see that Solomon has entered into a political alliance with the king of Egypt. And so the purpose of this marriage is for when you read uh, the parallel passages in Second Chronicles uh, chapters 1 and following, we find that as part of the dowry that Pharaoh has as he hands his daughter over to Solomon, he also gives uh, to Solomon strategic cities and fortified cities along important trade routes. It sounds wise for such uh, a king at the, the beginning of his career to try to establish some type of peace with the surrounding nations, perhaps the, uh, some type of peace to be affected with the greatest enemy historically to the people of God. But it's the very thing that the Lord had forbidden, and we're told right away that this is what Solomon has done. What we're going to see is that the, the author of Kings reserves judgment for Solomon until chapters 10 and 11. But here we begin to see some cracks in the foundation, some serious missteps along the way that will only get bigger and bigger and bigger as the narrative unfolds. But lest we be too hasty, I think there are some other features that we must not overlook 
Because as Second Chronicles makes clear, it is Pharaoh who hands the daughter over to Solomon. This is of Pharaoh's own desire. You see, in the ancient world, when these political alliances are forged through intermarriage, it's usually done through uh, the, 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 the push of the weaker king, the one who is in a much more uh, precarious position as he offers his own daughter in marriage to strengthen the ties uh, so that he is the one who will have peace. The Second Chronicles makes clear Pharaoh is the weaker of these two kings. I think this is critical to recognize. Even this early on in Solomon's reign, really only the third king in the, the dynasty in the history of Israel, first Saul uh, and then David and now Solomon, Israel has become such a great kingdom that even the Pharaoh himself is left quaking in his sandals. He makes some type of move to establish peace with the people of God, and yet he does so in such a way that now compromises the integrity of the people of God. Because so often when one is married in with a pagan, you're not only marrying into that family, you are marrying into the gods of that family. It's the very thing that is going to lead Solomon's heart astray towards the end of his life. But here we must recognize... What I think the point is here, and again in chapter 4 with the king of Tyre, is that Israel is in this particular position where it is so great that the nations are now coming to Israel seeking favors from the king. Israel will reach its zenith of power under that of Solomon. And we see it even in the earliest days of his reign. And though we are alerted to these significant problems, Scripture is more emphatic to note that though there are these serious missteps, Solomon does truly love the Lord. You see that here in verse 3. Rather simple but elegant statement, Solomon loved the Lord truly, though not fully, even if his genuine love for the Lord is mixed with so much folly. This is not a feigned love for his Savior. When you read Second Chronicles, you find even though Solomon has married the daughter of Pharaoh and brings her to live with him in Jerusalem while the temple of the Lord is being completed, as soon as that temple is completed, Solomon expels Pharaoh's daughter from the city lest she profane the name of the Lord. There seems to be, the Scripture says that there is, a legitimate love a genuine love that Solomon has for the Lord. It's a realistic portrait, a portrait that I think perhaps many of us recognize when we look in the mirror. How many of us truly love the Lord, though our love for him is weak and flawed and frail in so many ways? I think there is sometimes a tendency when we read some of these passages in the Old Testament or even the lives of the apostles and the Gospels to be so quick to judge when the reality is, maybe our lives are not too different. Solomon's folly will not go unnoticed. But what we ought to notice here is this, that Solomon realizes how bereft of wisdom he is. And he comes to the Lord pleading for wisdom that he might know how he should lead the people of God. In fact, more concerning than Solomon's marriage or, uh, at this point, foolish as it is, is the fact that the Lord himself is continuing to be worshipped at the high places. Remember our broader context as you work your way through the Old Testament. You see this re re repeated iteration in Deuteronomy 
The Lord tells the people of God through Moses that when you come to enter the land that I give you, you will worship at one place that I will designate according to the manner and the method that I have revealed. But this is what you will not do. You will not worship on the high places. You will not worship on every hill and under every tree as the Canaanites do, worshiping their gods according to their own passions and desires and according to their own ingenuity. No, you will worship as I see fit and how I have determined for the glory of God alone. It is, in fact, the most reiterated transgression of the nation in the books of the kings, that the nation continues to worship at the high places. And here we find that even Solomon himself is worshiping at the high places. It seems to be the second major misstep early on in his life. Not only that he's marrying Pharaoh's daughter, but now he continues to worship at the high places. You remember in the wilderness, the place where the Lord was worshipped was at the tent of meeting. As the Lord dwelt in the Holy of Holies above uh, the mercy seat in the tabernacle, and as Moses himself would go and enter into the tent, uh, the the scriptures tell us that the, the, the Lord himself would descend, as it were, and speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. After Moses' death, the Lord says, I will not speak face to face with anyone else in the same manner I spoke to Moses. Moses was unique in that regards. The Lord says with the prophets, I will speak to them in dreams and visions. And it seems that the tent of meeting becomes a place of prophetic activity where the Lord reveals himself in a dream. And this is certainly what we see going on here as Solomon goes up to where the tent of the Lord is. It's a rather strange situation as uh, the, the elements of the tabernacle are now split and scattered over and across the nation where the tent and the article are uh, in Gibeon, about four miles northwest of Jerusalem, even though the Ark of the Covenant itself is located in Jerusalem itself. David himself had brought the Ark back to Jerusalem. Well, now Solomon departs from Jerusalem to Gibeon, and he worships along the high places. And this is not some type of backwoods kind of shopping mall ministry center. Notice how large this this worship site is. He worships regularly by sacrificing a thousand burnt offerings at a time to the Lord his God. This is a major center of worship. But though he goes up to inquire of the Lord and though he's worshiping in the wrong manner, we see the the Lord in his mercy and kindness still appearing to Moses. He appears to him in a dream. And he says, ask. You've come to inquire, now ask. What shall I give you? And Solomon requests just one thing. Solomon says, I'm just a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. This isn't hyperbole. Again, 2 Chronicles makes it patent that Solomon is still just a young child. It really, I think in some ways, recasts how we've read the first two chapters of First and Second Kings. As Solomon comes to power and puts to death the enemies of his father, this is something that's been done by a child, an adolescent, a teenager, Solomon, recognizing the weightiness of what lies before him, he says, Oh Lord, your people are too numerous. It's not a bad thing. Uh, Solomon is, in fact, echoing the language of the Abrahamic covenant. Same thing that Moses does. Oh Lord, your, your people are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They're as numerous as the stars in the heaven. 
how, how greatly you have blessed us. But I'm just a kid. How am I to lead them? I, I don't know how to come out. I don't know how to go in. It seems to be an idiom for leadership. Solomon or uh, Moses had said the same thing even towards the end of his life after leading Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. Even Moses himself says, I don't know how to go out and come in. Solomon at the beginning of his life echoes the very same thing that Moses had said towards the end of his. Who, who is sufficient for these things? Who can lead such a great people? I think something kind of interesting in verse 8 uh, here when Solomon says that the people are too great, he's speaking of their numbers. Uh, and yet in verse 9 when he says the people are too great, he's using a different word that means not, uh, it's quite literally they're too heavy. Not saying that the nation's too fat, but rather that the situation is too difficult. We have these very difficult shepherding matters to attend to. Who has the wisdom to attend to all of these? I need some form of wisdom. I need your guidance. I cannot do this on my own. What I need is an understanding mind, or quite literally the text reads, what I need is a hearing heart. You know, when we hear the term heart, I think so many of us simply think of the affective part of the person. But in the Old Testament and uh, and the whole of Scripture, the heart is is a picture of the whole person. Right? You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Deuteronomy says. So when Solomon is saying, "What I need is a hearing heart," he's not simply talking about the affective region of his person. He's saying that what he needs is that his whole person would have a posture and a bent towards hearing what the Lord says. Not only that he would be open to hearing, but that his will would be attuned to heeding the commands of his God. He recognizes his disposition is ill-bent. He's asking for a disposition to hear rather than a disposition to speak. He needs a hearing heart. He recognizes where the source of wisdom is to be found. What is it that you would ask for if you were in such a similar situation? The Lord appeared to you as he had appeared to Solomon and said, ask what you will. What do you want? I don't know if wisdom's the first thing I would ask for. I don't even know if it'd be in the top ten of things I'd ask for. I remember I used to teach high school in Jacksonville and one of the other history teachers had this uh, poster that I really wanted uh, uh, when he retired, and it was stolen before I could get it, but it's a giant portrait of, of uh, Richard Nixon with his head on a massive robot, and underneath it, it simply said, May death come swiftly to his enemies. The Lord himself says, you didn't ask for that. You didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for... Uh, long life, you didn't ask for the death of your enemies. Think of all that Solomon has had to do so far to secure the kingdom. All the people he has had to put down like a dying dog. He doesn't ask for that. He asks for wisdom. He recognizes the importance of needing to hear. I think it's an important reminder for those of us, like myself, who are so quick to speak. Wisdom comes not by speaking, but through listening. It reminds us why the preached word is so important. Here is one day in seven where God's people are gathered as we sit down and we listen to what Christ says as he governs his church presently by his word and his spirit through the ministry of the word. It's the primary means by which we grow. 
It's the primary means by which we gain wisdom as we heed the voice of him who is wisdom itself, as Colossians tells us. Solomon here gives the reason for his request. I need to arbitrate. I need to judge. I need properly to discern between good and evil, echoing over and over again the language of Genesis chapter 2, just as Adam was to learn to distinguish the good from the bad, the good from the evil, as he stood before the tree, the knowledge in good and evil. The question is always put to him, what will you do? Will you obey the voice of the Lord your God, or will you heed Competing voices vying for your affections, vying for your will, vying for your mind. So Solomon says, I need to discern between good and evil, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of these situations. As these situations and circumstances arise where there doesn't seem to be a clear solution, when trials come and there doesn't seem to be any type of way out, Solomon says, I need wisdom so that I can render true judgment on account of your great and difficult people, a difficult people who need one to lead and guide them in the path of righteousness for your namesake. Difficult matters that need attending to, and I need wisdom. See, Solomon's request is for the good of the kingdom. Solomon here is the man of peace, a certain play on words with his name. Shlomo is the man of shalom. He is the man who will effect peace for the people of God by establishing peace in the land. But he knows the primary way to do it is not to ask for the death of his enemies. It is not simply to ask for riches or long life. It is to ask for wisdom so that he knows how to lead the nation in the path of righteousness. As he seeks first the kingdom to discern good from evil. And here we find a God responding to Solomon's request, willing to dispense such wisdom. The Lord says, because you have asked for this, because you have asked for wisdom, I'm throwing everything else in as well. The whole kit and caboodle. Perhaps this is why Solomon will write in Proverbs chapter 3 that wisdom has long life in her right hand and riches and honor in her left. You ask for wisdom, everything else comes as part of, as an umbrella package under this. See, the Bible places such an ultimate premium on wisdom, wisdom that is acquired not simply through the mere reading of books, but a wisdom that finds its basis in the fear of the Lord and obeying the Lord's commands. Think of Christ's own words in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about the things that are needed for this life, food, drink, clothing, The Lord knows you have need of those, just as how he knew Solomon had need of those. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. See, Solomon's own request presents to us a paradigm for Christian living. This is not something that is unique to Solomon in uh, in one sense. As Solomon, uh, writing to his own sons and with it, writing to the whole nation, in Proverbs chapter 2, says the same thing. He says, My son, if you receive my words, if you treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding... If you seek for it like you would seek for silver and you search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Then you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. 
He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is the shield to those who walk in integrity, who guards the paths of justice and watches over the ways of his saints. And it is here that you will understand righteousness, justice, equity, every good path. Isn't that what James tells us as well in the New Testament? That if any of us are lacking in wisdom, we could come to God who is generous to give all that we need that we might walk in his ways. What is our chief concern? Is it simply our daily needs? The Lord will provide for those, but above all, seek the kingdom. Seek his righteousness. Seek the wisdom of what it means to walk the path of godliness. Well, Solomon prays for wisdom, it is granted, and immediately that wisdom is put to the test. You see this here in the second half of the passage, the, the tale of two harlots. As Solomon immediately begins to reckon with a difficult or heavy people. As he's thrust into shepherding and evaluating and assessing an impossible test case. They were so used to the story, it's easy to forget how difficult the scenario is. Consider the circumstances. You have two women, uh, women from the same socioeconomic standing, both women with no moral compass, both women are equally untrustworthy, the fathers are absent and given the line of work, perhaps even the identity of the fathers are unknown. Nobody has come to the aid of these women. There are no other eyewitnesses three times it is said here in this passage just the two of us in the house when all these things took place. It's long before the, the, the age of fingerprinting and DNA testing. It is really a she said, she said scenario. The identity of both the prostitutes are unknown. We don't even know their names. We actually don't know which one is telling the truth when both of them come forward to bring the case to be adjudicated. We are left totally in the dark. How different this is from chapter 2. You remember what happens with Joab and how the situation with Joab is to be reckoned. Joab, a man of a cold-blooded murderer, one of David's generals who had killed in cold-blooded, premeditated fashion. He flees to the tent for refuge as a place for refuge because it was a place for refuge for people who were guilty of unintentional killings. Manslaughter, what we'd use in kind of common parlance. But not Joab. His was premeditated. He had killed men in a time of peace. And though he flees for refuge, Solomon says, to have him put to death. Why? Because the law of Moses specifically stated that the man who committed cold-blooded murder like that did not have a place of refuge to flee. He was to be put to death. The law of Moses gives an answer key in chapter 2, on what Solomon is to do. There is no answer key in the book of Moses for how this is to be adjudicated. How difficult the situation is. See, the wisdom that Solomon has asked for is not purely theoretical. It is not purely academic. Here we find the life and solidarity of an already broken family is at stake here. It's a serious shepherding matter. And who has the wisdom to adjudicate in a situation like this? What do you do? 
We find that the problem is not ignorance on Solomon's part. In verse 23 and following, Solomon says, all right, and he reiterates the case back to them. Let me get this straight. You're claiming that this is going on. You're claiming that this is going on. They say, yes, that is the situation. This is not the problem of a judge who doesn't know the case that has been laid out before him. Sometimes a judge rules unjustly because he fails to understand what's going on. That's not the case here. Here, the king with the hearing heart receives wisdom. He has heard out the needs of the people, and now he acts with wisdom, a wisdom that God has given, a wisdom that has enabled him to understand human nature in all of its sinfulness, in all of its frailty, in all the complexities of life. And so he puts the love of the true mother to the test. He simply says, bring me the sword. Simple solution. This will cut the Gordian knot in two. Divide the baby in half. Give one half to you, the other half to the other. But now we see the hearts of both women exposed. On the one hand, you have this woman who is just wicked and vindictive. Basically says, if I can't have it, nobody can. Fine. Hack it to pieces. Well, neither of us gets what we want. But then the true mother, think of the situation this puts her in. She's giving up a lifetime with her child so long as it survives that that is all that matters. She says, no, please let it live. Give it to the other woman. I'd rather be parted from my own child, whom I love, than see it put to death like this. Solomon says, all right, now we know who the real mother is, don't we? point is this, God has granted Solomon the wisdom to judge the people of God with justice, with equity, and with righteousness, even the dregs of society. Which leads us to ask this one final question, what kind of king would ever hear the likes of two prostitutes? David sure didn't. You read the story of David, it turns out David wouldn't hear any cases That's one of the reasons why Absalom is able to get such a following. Every day, the elders would gather in the center of the city and adjudicate, dealing with the various issues uh, that were going on in the day, and David would never show up. So Absalom would go up and say, all right, hear, hear me out, friends. Hear me out, brothers. I'll adjudicate for you. And then he turned and say, well, my dad won't adjudicate. My dad won't hear what's going on, but I'll hear. And that's how he is able to incite a rebellion against David. Well, here we see David's greater son sitting on a throne, sitting on the throne. And here is a king who does hear. Here is a king who does listen, not just to the rich and the powerful, but to a bunch of nobodies whose names we don't even know. Here is a king who listens to sinners. And you see here in the reign of Solomon, we're given a picture of Christ. The king who hears sinners cries. Him who is the friend to tax collectors and prostitutes. We don't have a ruler who simply says, you know, why should I bother listening to you given the life that you have led? It's all just your fault. Deal with it on your own. Now here is a king who adjudicates between two sinners. Both deserve death. According to the law of Moses, prostitutes can be put to death. And yet, here we have a particular situation where one of these two sinners has been defrauded. 
And here is a king who takes the time to hear them out. Here is a king who bends his ear to listen to the various ways in which sinners have been defrauded. And he judges with equity, with righteousness, and with mercy. Because he knows their frailty. Here the kindness of the king is brought into view. The kindness of a king who rules in righteousness and wisdom. And it gives us a picture of our king who reigns now in heaven. Christ who is himself the very wisdom of God. Who from before the foundations of the earth was the means by which God used to establish the worlds and call them into being. Here is a king who still stoops to hear the ways in which we, deserving death that we are, he stoops to hear us in the ways in which we have been wronged, who rules in wisdom and who delights to answer. Shouldn't this fuel our prayers and give us a, a, a confidence as we approach a king who hears every situation of ours, who grants wisdom when we don't know a way forward, or even in our own frailty, knowing that we do not worship God and though we do not love God as we ought. He knows that because we have been redeemed by his blood and filled with his spirit, that the love that we have for him is genuine. And as frail as it is, he continues to hear us and tend to our needs as he leads us in the path of godliness, that we might grow in righteousness. We do not serve an absentee landlord. Christ is the king who governs his church. One of the ways in which he governs his church is through the officers in his church. This is why church discipline is so important. As God's justice is mediated through faithful under-shepherds, not simply to condemn the impenitent, but to vindicate those who have been wronged. To help deal with matters that are difficult like this. We might add here, as, as a practical application, it's, it's important that you pray for your pastors and your elders as they have to adjudicate very difficult matters for life in the kingdom of God. But here we are not left without hope. Because we have a God who graciously gives wisdom to all who come to him. As his justice is meted out, but it is in fact a merciful justice. And it is a merciful justice that should shape how we hear the cries of others around us. That should remind us that we should not write people off on account of their own imperfections. That we should hear those who are seeking a king who brings clarity to a world that has been thrust into darkness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wisdom that comes from on high. We pray that your word would illuminate our path, that we might walk in your ways. When we encounter difficult situations and we don't know how to respond, we pray that you would give us ears that would be attentive, hearts that would hear your word, and the counsel of faithful, believing friends that we might be diligent to believe all you've commanded us to believe and to do all that you've commanded us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.